Alright everyone, hey, how are you doing? Hope everyone's doing well out there. This is Black Clock Audio Tales, and we are here to tell you ghost stories, spooky stories, folklore, gothic horror, weird fiction, and more. So, how are you doing? Uh, we are in week three of Poe, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe, and as always, Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by FoundItemClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm with bunny slippers. They've got those Dino Sound slippers. They've got soft plush uppers and firm foam bottoms that grip and don't slip. Make Dino Sounds every three steps. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't lose your feet to frostbite. And eat vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. And listen to PGTTCM, our Cthulhu show that is the end of the month, every month. This month, we're going to have some Ken Height. We're going to have some Scott Glancy. Maybe we'll have some Andrew Migliori. I don't know. We'll probably have some David Heath. And of course, we'll have me, your host, D.B. Spitzer. Thank you again so much for listening to People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Dave's Corner of this Podcast. Articulate warbling, and sooner than later, Dave's underground goat shenanigans. All produced through Badger Strip Studio here in glorious Portland, Oregon. Give us five stars if you like the show. Let us know, give us a review, or you can always donate money through some sort of patron scheme through podbean.com. Go to pgttcm.podbean.com. Click the donate button and learn how, or go to pgttcm.com and learn how to be a patron by clicking on the patron button. We're on social media, Facebook, MySpace, no, we're not on MySpace, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram mostly is where you're going to get the cool, fresh news, and Twitter if you just kind of want like a little repeater of the RSS feed. Thank you again so much, and here we go with Edgar Allan Poe, Week 3, Book 3, The Raven Works Collection, Collected, Collection, Collected, Edgar Allan Poe. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe, A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 3. The thought instantly occurred to me that the paper was a note from Augustus and that some unaccountable accident having happened to prevent his relieving me from my dungeon, he had devised this method of acquainting me with the true state of affairs. Trembling with eagerness, I now commenced another search for my phosphorus matches and tapers. I had a confused recollection of having put them carefully away just before falling asleep, and indeed, previously to my last journey to the trap, I had been able to remember the exact spot where I had deposited them. But now I endeavored in vain to call it to mind, and busied myself for a full hour in a fruitless and vexatious search for the missing articles. Never, surely, was there a more tantalizing state of anxiety and suspense. At length, while groping about with my head close to the ballast, near the opening of the box, and outside of it, I perceived a faint glimmering of light in the direction of the steerage. Greatly surprised, I endeavored to make my way toward it, as it appeared to be but a few feet from my position. Scarcely had I moved with this intention when I lost sight of the glimmer entirely and, before I could bring it into view again, was obliged to feel along by the box until I had exactly resumed my original situation. Now, 
moving my head with caution to and fro, I found that, by proceeding slowly, with great care, in an opposite direction to that in which I had at first started, I was enabled to draw near the light, still keeping it in view. Presently I came directly upon it, having squeezed my way through innumerable narrow windings, and found that it proceeded from some fragments of my matches lying in an empty barrel turned upon its side. I was wondering how they came in such a place, when my hand fell upon two or three pieces of taper wax, which had been evidently mumbled by the dog. I concluded at once that he had devoured the whole of my supply of candles, and I felt hopeless of being ever able to read the note of Augustus. The small remnants of the wax were so mashed up among other rubbish in the barrel that I despaired of deriving any service from them, and left them as they were. The phosphorus, of which there was only a speck or two, I gathered up as well as I could, and returned with it, after much difficulty, to my box, where Tiger had all the while remained. What to do next I could not tell. The hold was so intensely dark that I could not see my hand, however close I would hold it to my face. The white slip of paper could barely be discerned, and not even that when I looked at it directly, by turning the exterior portions of the retina towards it, that is to say, by surveying it slightly askance, I found that it became in some measure perceptible. Thus the gloom of my prison may be imagined, and the note of my friend, if indeed it were a note from him, seemed only likely to throw me into further trouble, by disquieting to no purpose my already enfeebled and agitated mind. In vain I revolved in my mind a multitude of absurd expedients for procuring light, such expedients precisely as a man in the perturbed sleep occasioned by opium would be apt to fall upon for a similar purpose, each and all of which appear by turns to the dreamer the most reasonable and most preposterous of conceptions, just as the reasoning or imaginative faculties flicker, alternately, one above the other. At last an idea occurred to me which seemed rational, and which gave me cause to wonder, very justly, that I had not entertained it before. I placed a slip of paper on the back of a book, and collecting the fragments of the phosphorus matches which I had brought from the barrel, laid them together upon the paper. I then, with the palm of my hand, rubbed the hole over quickly, yet steadily. A clear light diffused itself immediately throughout the whole surface, and had there been any writing upon it, I should not have experienced the least difficulty, I am sure, in reading it. Not a syllable was there, however, nothing but a dreary and unsatisfactory blank. The illumination died away in a few seconds, and my heart died away within me as it went. I have before stated more than once that my intellect, for some period prior to this, had been in a condition nearly bordering on idiocy. There were, to be sure, momentary intervals of perfect sanity, and, now and then, even of energy, but these were few. It must be remembered that I had been, for many days certainly, inhaling the almost penitential atmosphere of a close hold in a whaling vessel, and for a long portion of that time but scantily supplied with water. For the last fourteen or fifteen hours I had none, nor had I slept during that time. Salt provisions of the most exciting kind had been my chief, and indeed, since the loss of the mutton, my only supply of food, with the exception of the sea biscuit, and these latter were utterly useless to me, as they were too dry and hard to be swallowed in the swollen and parched condition of my throat. I was now in a high state of fever, and in every respect exceedingly ill. This will account for the fact that many miserable hours of despondency elapsed after my last adventure with the phosphorus, before the thought suggested itself that I had examined only one side of the paper. I shall not attempt to describe my feelings of rage, for I believe I was more angry than anything else, when the egregious oversight I had committed flashed suddenly upon my perception. The blunder itself would have been unimportant, had not my own folly and impetuosity rendered it otherwise, in my disappointment at not finding some words upon the slip, 
I had childishly torn it to pieces and thrown it away. It was impossible to say where. From the worst part of this dilemma I was relieved by the sagacity of Tiger. Having got, after a long search, a small piece of the note, I put it to the dog's nose, and endeavored to make him understand that he must bring me the rest of it. To my astonishment, for I had taught him none of the usual tricks for which his breed are famous, he seemed to enter at once into my meaning, and, rummaging about for a few moments, soon found another considerable portion. Bringing me this, he paused a while, and, rubbing his nose against my hand, appeared to be waiting for my approval of what he had done. I patted him on the head when he immediately made off again. It was now some minutes before he came back, but when he did come, he brought with him a large slip, which proved to be all the paper missing, it having been torn, it seems, only into three pieces. Luckily, I had no trouble in finding what few fragments of the phosphorus were left, being guided by the indistinct glow one or two of the particles still emitted. My difficulties had taught me the necessity of caution, and now I took time to reflect upon what I was about to do. It was very probable, I considered, that some words were written upon that side of the paper which had not been examined. But which side was that? Fitting the pieces together gave me no clue in this respect, although it assured me that the words, if there were any, would be found all on one side, and connected in a proper manner, as written. There was the greater necessity of ascertaining the point in question beyond a doubt, as the phosphorus remaining would be altogether insufficient for a third attempt should I fail in the one I was now about to make. I placed the paper on a book as before, and sat for some minutes thoughtfully revolving the matter over in my mind. At last I thought it barely possible that the written side might have some unevenness on its surface, which a delicate sense of feeling might enable me to detect. I determined to make the experiment, and passed my finger very carefully over the side which first presented itself. Nothing, however, was perceptible, and I turned the paper, adjusting it on the book. I now again carried my forefinger cautiously along, when I was aware of an exceedingly slight but still discernible glow, which followed as it proceeded. This, I knew, must arise from some very minute remaining particles of the phosphorus with which I had covered the paper in my previous attempt. The other, or underside, then, was that on which lay the writing, if writing there should finally prove to be. Again I turned the note, and went to work as I had previously done. Having rubbed in the phosphorus, a brilliancy ensued as before, but this time several lines of manuscript in a large hand, and apparently in red ink, became distinctly visible. The glimmer, although sufficiently bright, was but momentary. Still, had I not been too greatly excited, there would have been ample time enough for me to peruse the whole three sentences before me, for I saw there were three. In my anxiety, however, to read all at once, I succeeded only in reading the seven concluding words, which thus appeared. Blood. Your life depends upon lying close. Had I been able to ascertain the entire contents of the note, the full meaning of the admonition which my friend had thus attempted to convey, that admonition, even although it should have revealed a story of disaster the most unspeakable, could not, I am firmly convinced, have imbued my mind with one-tenth of the harrowing and yet indefinable horror with which I was inspired by the fragmentary warning thus received. And blood, too, that word of all words, so rife at all times with mystery and suffering and terror. How trebly full of import did it now appear! How chilly and heavily, disjointed as it thus was, from any foregoing words to qualify or render it distinct, did its vague syllables fall, amid the deep gloom of my prison, into the innermost recesses of my soul. Augustus had, undoubtedly, good reasons for wishing me to remain concealed, and I formed a thousand surmises as to what they could be, but I could think of nothing affording a satisfactory solution of the mystery. Just after returning from my last journey to the trap, 
and before my attention had been otherwise directed by the singular conduct of Tiger, I had come to the resolution of making myself heard at all events by those on board, or, if I could not succeed in this directly, of trying to cut my way through the Orlop deck. The half-certainty which I felt of being able to accomplish one of these two purposes in the last emergency had given me courage, which I should not otherwise have had, to endure the evils of my situation. The first words I had been able to read, however, had cut me off from these final resources, and I now, for the first time, felt all the misery of my fate. In a paroxysm of despair I threw myself again upon the mattress where, for about the period of a day and night, I lay in a kind of stupor, relieved only by momentary intervals of reason and recollection. At length I once more arose, and busied myself in reflection upon the horrors which encompassed me. For another twenty-four hours it was barely possible that I might exist without water. For a longer time I could not do so. During the first portion of my imprisonment I had made free use of the cordials with which Augustus had supplied me. But they only served to excite fever, without in the least degree assuaging thirst. I had now only about a gill left, and this was of a species of strong peach liquor at which my stomach revolted. The sausages were entirely consumed. Of the ham, nothing remained but a small piece of the skin, and all the biscuit, except a few fragments of one, had been eaten by Tiger. To add to my troubles, I found that my headache was increasing momentarily, and with it the species of delirium which had distressed me more or less since my first falling asleep. For some hours past it had been with the greatest difficulty I could breathe at all, and now each attempt at so doing was attended with the most depressing spasmatic action of the chest. But there was still another and very different source of disquietude, and one, indeed, whose harassing terrors had been the chief means of arousing me to exertion from my stupor on the mattress. It arose from the demeanor of the dog. I first observed an alteration in his conduct, while rubbing in the phosphorus on the paper in my last attempt. As I rubbed, he ran his nose against my hand with a slight snarl but I was too greatly excited at the time to pay much attention to the circumstance. Soon afterwards, it will be remembered, I threw myself on the mattress, and fell into a species of lethargy. Presently, I became aware of a singular hissing sound close to my ears, and discovered it to proceed from Tiger, who was panting and wheezing in a state of the greatest apparent excitement, his eyeballs flashing fiercely through the gloom. I spoke to him, when he replied with a low growl, and then remained quiet. Presently, I relapsed into my stupor, from which I was again awakened in a similar manner. This was repeated three or four times, until finally his behavior inspired me with so great a degree of fear that I became fully aroused. He was now lying close by the door of the box, snarling fearfully, although in a kind of undertone, and grinding his teeth as if strongly convulsed. I had no doubt whatever that the want of water or the combined atmosphere of the hold had driven him mad, and I was at a loss what course to pursue. I could not endure the thought of killing him, yet it seemed absolutely necessary for my own safety. I could distinctly perceive his eyes fastened upon me with an expression of the most deadly animosity, and I expected every instant that he would attack me. At last I could endure my terrible situation no longer, and determined to make my way from the box at all hazards and dispatch him, if his opposition should render it necessary for me to do so. To get out, I had to pass directly over his body and he already seemed to anticipate my design, massing himself upon his forelegs, as I perceived by the altered position of his eyes, and displayed the whole of his white fangs, which were easily discernible. I took the remains of the ham-skin, and the bottle containing the liquor, and secured them about my person, together with a large carving-knife which Augustus had left me. Then, folding my cloak around me as closely as possible, I made a movement towards the mouth of the box. No sooner did I do this, 
than the dog sprang with a loud growl towards my throat. The whole weight of his body struck me on the right shoulder, and I fell violently to the left, while the enraged animal passed entirely over me. I had fallen upon my knees, with my head buried among the blankets, and these protected me from a second furious assault, during which I felt the sharp teeth pressing vigorously upon the woolen which enveloped my neck, yet, luckily, without being able to penetrate all the folds. I was now beneath the dog, and a few moments would place me completely in his power. Despair gave me strength, and I rose boldly up, shaking him from me by main force, and dragging with me the blankets from the mattress. These I now threw over him, and before he could extricate himself, I had got through the door and closed it effectually against his pursuit. In this struggle, however, I had been forced to drop the morsel of hamskin, and I now found my whole stock of provisions reduced to a single gill of liquor. As this reflection crossed my mind, I felt myself actuated by one of those fits of perverseness which might be supposed to influence a spoiled child in similar circumstances, and raising the bottle to my lips, I drained it to the last drop and dashed it furiously upon the floor. Scarcely had the echo of the crash died away when I heard my name pronounced in an eager but subdued voice, issuing from the direction of the steerage. So unexpected was anything of the kind, and so intense was the emotion excited within me by the sound that I endeavored in vain to reply. My powers of speech totally failed, and in an agony of terror lest my friend should conclude me dead and return without attempting to reach me, I stood up between the crates near the door of the box, trembling convulsively and gasping and struggling for utterance. Had a thousand words depended upon a syllable, I could not have spoken it. There was a slight movement now audible among the lumber somewhere forward of my station. The sound presently grew less distinct, then again less so, and still less. Shall I ever forget my feelings at this moment? He was going. My friend, my companion, from whom I had a right to expect so much. He was going. He would abandon me. He was gone. He would leave me to perish miserably, to expire in the most horrible and loathsome of dungeons, and one word, one little syllable would save me. Yet that single syllable I could not utter. I felt, I am sure, more than ten thousand times the agonies of death itself. My brain reeled, and I fell, deadly sick, against the end of the box. As I fell, the carving knife was shaken out from the waistband of my pantaloons, and dropped with a rattling sound to the floor. Never did any strain of the richest melody come so sweetly to my ears. With the intensest anxiety I listened to ascertain the effects of the noise upon Augustus, for I knew that the person who called my name could be no one but himself. All was silent for some moments. At length I again heard the word, Arthur, repeated in a low tone, and one full of hesitation. Reviving hope loosened at once my powers of speech, and I now screamed at the top of my voice, Augustus! Oh, Augustus! Hush! For God's sake, be silent, he replied, in a voice trembling with agitation. I will be with you immediately, as soon as I can make my way through the hold. For a long time I heard him moving among the lumber, and every moment seemed to me an age. At length I felt his hand upon my shoulder, and he placed, at the same moment, a bottle of water to my lips. Those only who have been suddenly redeemed from the jaws of the tomb, or who have known the insufferable torments of thirst under circumstances as aggravated as those which encompassed me in my dreary prison, can form any idea of the unutterable transports which that one long draught of the richest of all physical luxuries afforded. When I had in some degree satisfied my thirst, Augustus produced from his pocket three or four boiled potatoes, which I devoured with the greatest avidity. He had brought with him a light and a dark lantern, and the grateful rays afforded me scarcely less comfort than the food and drink. But I was impatient to learn the cause of his protracted absence, and he proceeded to recount what had happened on board during my incarceration. 
End of section three. Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume Three by Edgar Allan Poe. Narrative of A. Gordon Pym, Chapter Four. The brig put to sea, as I had supposed, in about an hour after he had left the watch. This was on the twentieth of June. It will be remembered that I had then been in the hold for three days, and during this period. There was so constant a bustle on board, and so much running to and fro, especially in the cabin and staterooms, that he had had no chance of visiting me without the risk of having the secret of the trap discovered. When at length he did come, I had assured him that I was doing as well as possible, and therefore, for the two next days, he felt but little uneasiness on my account. Still, however, watching an opportunity of going down, it was not until the fourth day that he found one. Several times during this interval, he had made up his mind to let his father know of the adventure, and have me come up at once. But we were still within reaching distance of Nantucket, and it was doubtful, from some expressions which had escaped Captain Bernard, whether he would not immediately put back if he discovered me to be on board. Besides, upon thinking the matter over, Augustus, so he told me, could not imagine that I was in imminent want, or that I would hesitate in such case to make myself heard at the trap. When, therefore, He considered everything. He concluded to let me stay until he could meet with an opportunity of visiting me unobserved. This, as I said before, did not occur until the fourth day after his bringing me to the watch, and the seventh since I first entered the hold. He then went down without taking with him any water or provisions, intending in the first place merely to call my attention and get me to come from the box to the trap, when he would go up to the stateroom and thence hand me down a supply. When he descended for this purpose, he found that I was asleep. For it seems that I was snoring very loudly. From all calculations I can make on the subject, this must have been the slumber into which I fell just after my return from the trap with the watch, and which, consequently, must have lasted for more than three entire days and nights at the very least. Latterly, I have had reason, both from my own experience and the assurance of others, to be acquainted with the strong soporific effects of the stench arising from old fish oil when closely confined. And when I think of the condition of the hold in which I was imprisoned, and the long period during which the brig had been used as a whaling vessel, I am more inclined to wonder that I woke at all after once falling asleep than that I should have slept uninterruptedly for the period specified above. Augustus called to me at first in a low voice and without closing the trap, but I made him no reply. He then shut the trap and spoke to me in a louder and finally in a very loud tone. Still, I continued to snore. He was now at a loss what to do. It would take him some time to make his way through the lumber to my box, and in the meanwhile his absence would be noticed by Captain Bernard, who had occasion for his services every minute in arranging and copying papers connected with the business of the voyage. He determined, therefore, upon reflection, to ascend and await another opportunity of visiting me. He was the more easily induced to this resolve as my slumber appeared to be one of the most tranquil nature, and he could not suppose that I had undergone any inconvenience from my incarceration. He had just made up his mind on these points when his attention was arrested by an unusual bustle, the sound of which proceeded apparently from the cabin. He sprang through the trap as quickly as possible, closed it, and threw open the door of his stateroom. No sooner had he put his foot over the threshold than a pistol flashed in his face, and he was knocked down at the same moment by a blow from a handspike. A strong hand held him on the cabin floor with a tight grasp around his throat. Still, he was able to see what was going on around him. His father was tied hand and foot, and lying along the steps of the companionway, with his head down and a deep wound in his forehead, from which the blood was flowing in a continuous stream. He spoke not a word and was apparently dying. 
Over him stood the first mate, eyeing him with an expression of fiendish derision and deliberately searching his pockets, from which he presently drew forth a large wallet and a chronometer. Seven of the crew, among whom was the cook, a negro, were rummaging the staterooms on the lord board for arms, where they soon equipped themselves with muskets and ammunition. Besides Augustus and Captain Bernard, there were nine men altogether in the cabin, and these among the most ruffianly of the brig's company. The villains now went upon the deck, taking my friend with them after having secured his arms behind his back. They proceeded straight to the forecastle, which was fastened down, two of the mutineers standing by it with axes, two also at the main hatch. The mate called out in a loud voice, Do you hear down below? Tumble up with you, one by one. Now, mark that, and no grumbling. It was some minutes before anyone appeared. At last an Englishman, who had shipped as a raw hand, came up, weeping piteously and entreating the mate in the most humble manner to spare his life. The only reply was a blow to the forehead from an axe. The poor fellow fell to the deck without a groan, and the black cook lifted him up in his arms as he would a child, and tossed him deliberately into the sea. Hearing the blow and the plunge of the body, the men below could now be induced to venture onto the deck neither by threats nor promises until a proposition was made to smoke them out. A general rush then ensued, and for a moment it seemed possible that the brig might be retaken. The mutineers, however, succeeded at last in closing the forecastle effectually before more than six of their opponents could get up. These six, finding themselves so greatly outnumbered and without arms, submitted after a brief struggle. The mate gave them fair words, no doubt with a view of inducing those below to yield, for they had no difficulty in hearing all that was said on deck. The result proved his sagacity no less than his diabolical villainy. All in the forecastle presently signified their intention of submitting, and, ascending one by one, were pinioned and then thrown on their backs, together with the first six. There being in all, of the crew who were not concerned in the mutiny, twenty-seven. A scene of the most horrible butchery ensued. The bound seamen were dragged to the gangway. Here the cook stood with an axe, striking each victim on the head as he was forced over the side of the vessel by the other mutineers. In this manner, twenty-two perished and Augustus had given himself up for lost, expecting every moment his own turn to come next. But it seemed that the villains were now either weary or in some measure disgusted with their bloody labor, for the four remaining prisoners, together with my friend, who had been thrown on the deck with the rest, were respited while the mate sent below for rum and the whole murderous party held a drunken carouse, which lasted until sunset. They now fell to disputing in regard to the fate of the survivors, who lay not more than four paces off and could distinguish every word said. Upon some of the mutineers the liquor appeared to have a softening effect, for several voices were heard in favor of releasing the captives altogether on condition of joining the mutiny and sharing the profits. The black cook, however, who in all respects was a perfect demon, and who seemed to exert as much influence if not more than the mate himself, would listen to no proposition of the kind, and rose repeatedly for the purpose of resuming his work at the gangway. Fortunately he was so far overcome by his intoxication as to be easily restrained by the less bloodthirsty of the party, among whom was a line manager who went by the name of Dirk Peters. This man was the son of an Indian squaw of the tribe of Soricus, who lived among the fastnesses of the Black Hills, near the source of the Missouri. His father was a fur trader, I believe, or at least connected in some manner with the Indian trading posts on Lewis River. Peter himself was one of the most ferocious-looking men I ever beheld. He was short in stature, not more than four feet eight inches high, but his limbs were of Herculean mold. His hands, especially, were so enormously thick and broad as hardly to retain a human shape. 
His arms, as well as legs, were bowed in the most singular manner and appeared to possess no flexibility whatever. His head was equally deformed, being of enormous size, with an indentation on the crown, like that on the head of most Negroes, and entirely bald. To conceal this latter deficiency, which did not proceed from old age, he usually wore a wig formed of any hair-like material which presented itself, occasionally the skin of a Spanish dog or American grizzly bear. At the time spoken of, he had a portion of one of these bear skins, and it added no little to the natural ferocity of his countenance, which betook of the absorica character. The mouth extended nearly from ear to ear, the lips were thin and seemed, like some other portions of his frame, to be devoid of natural pliancy, so that the ruling expression never varied under the influence of any emotion whatever. This ruling expression may be contrived when it is considered that the teeth were exceedingly long and protruding, and never even partially covered in any instance by the lips. To pass this man with a casual glance, one might imagine him to be convulsed with laughter, but a second look would induce a shuddering acknowledgment that if such an expression were indicative of merriment, the merriment must be that of a demon. Of this singular being, many anecdotes were prevalent among the seafaring men of Nantucket. These anecdotes went to prove his prodigious strength when under excitement, and some of them had given rise to a doubt of his sanity. But on board the Grampus, it seems, he was regarded, at the time of the mutiny, with feelings more of derision than of anything else. I have been thus particular in speaking of Dirk Peters because, ferocious as he appeared, he proved the main instrument in preserving the life of Augustus, and because I shall have frequent occasion to mention him hereafter in the course of my narrative, a narrative, let me say here, which, in its latter portions, will be found to include incidents of a nature so entirely out of the range of human experience, and for this reason so far beyond the limits of human credulity, that I proceed in utter hopelessness of obtaining credence for all that I shall tell, yet confidently trusting in time and progressing science to verify some of the most important and most improbable of my statements. After much indecision and two or three violent quarrels, it was determined at last that all the prisoners, with the exception of Augustus, whom Peters insisted in jocular manner upon keeping as his clerk, should be set adrift in one of the smallest whaleboats. The mate went down into the cabin to see if Captain Bernard was still living, for, it will be remembered, he was left below when the mutineers came up. Presently, the two made their appearance, the captain pale as death, but somewhat recovered from the effects of his wound. He spoke to the men in a voice hardly articulate, entreating them not to set him adrift, but to return to their duties, and promising to land them wherever they chose, and to take no steps for bringing them to justice. He might as well have spoken to the winds. Two of the ruffians seized him by the arms and hurled him over the brig's side into the boat, which had been lowered while the mate went below. The four men who were lying on the deck were then untied and ordered to follow, which they did without attempting any resistance. Augustus, being still left in his painful position, although he struggled and prayed only for the poor satisfaction of being permitted to bid his father farewell. A handful of sea biscuit and a jug of water were now handed down, but neither mast, sail, oar, nor compass. The boat was towed astern for a few minutes, during which the mutineers held another consultation. It was then finally cut adrift. By this time night had come on. There were neither moon nor stars visible, and a short ugly sea was running, although there was no great deal of wind. The boat was instantly out of sight, and little hope could be entertained for the unfortunate sufferers who were in it. This event happened, however, in latitude 35 degrees, 30 minutes north, longitude 61 degrees, 20 minutes west, and consequently at no very great distance from the Bermuda Islands. Augustus therefore endeavored to console himself with the idea that the boat might either succeed in reaching the land 
or come sufficiently near to be fallen in with by vessels off the coast. All sail was now put upon the brig, and she continued her original course to the southwest, the mutineers being bent upon some piratical expedition, in which, from all that could be understood, a ship was to be intercepted on her way from the Cape Verde Islands to Puerto Rico. No attention was paid to Augustus, who was untied and suffered to go about anywhere forward of the cabin companionway. Dirk Peters treated him with some degree of kindness, and on one occasion saved him from the brutality of the cook. His situation was still one of the most precarious, as the men were continually intoxicated, and there was no relying upon their continued good humor or carelessness in regard to himself. His anxiety on my account be represented, however, as the most distressing result of his condition, and, indeed, I had never reason to doubt the sincerity of his friendship. More than once he had resolved to acquaint the mutineers with the secret of my being on board, but was restrained from doing so, partly through recollection of the atrocities he had already beheld, and partly through a hope of being able soon to bring me relief. For the latter purpose he was constantly on the watch, but in spite of the most constant vigilance, three days elapsed after the boat was cut adrift before any chance occurred. At length, on the night of the third day, there came on a heavy blow from the eastward, and all hands were called upon to take in sail. During the confusion which ensued, he made his way below unobserved and into the stateroom. What was his grief and horror in discovering that the latter had been rendered a place of deposit for a variety of sea stores and ship furniture, and that several fathoms of old chain cable, which had been stowed away beneath the companion ladder, had been dragged thence to make room for a chest, and were now lying immediately upon the trap. To move it without discovery was impossible, and he returned on deck as quickly as he could. As he came up, the mate seized him by the throat, and demanding what he had been doing in the cabin, was about flinging him over the lardboard bulwark when his life was again preserved through the interference of Dirk Peters. Augustus was now put in handcuffs, of which there were several pairs on board, and his feet lashed tightly together. He was then taken into the steerage and thrown into the lower berth next to the forecastle bulkheads, with the assurance that he would never put his foot on deck again until the brig was no longer a brig. This was the expression of the cook who threw him into the berth. It is hardly possible to say what precise meaning intended by the phrase. The whole affair, however, proved the ultimate means of my relief, as will presently appear. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. A. Gordon Pym, Chapter 5. For some minutes after the cook had left the forecastle, Augustus abandoned himself to despair, never hoping to leave the berth alive. He now came to the resolution of acquainting the first of the men who should come down with my situation, thinking it better to let me take my chance with the mutineers than perish of thirst in the hold. For it had been ten days since I was first imprisoned, and my jug of water was not a plentiful supply even for four. As he was thinking on this subject, the idea came all at once into his head that it might be possible to communicate with me by way of the main hold. In any other circumstances, the difficulty and hazards of the undertaking would have prevented him from attempting it. But now he had, at all events, little prospect of life, and consequently little to lose. He bent his whole mind, therefore, upon the task. His handcuffs were the first consideration. At first he saw no method of removing them, and feared that he should thus be baffled in the very outset. But upon a closer scrutiny he discovered that the irons could be slipped off and on at pleasure, with very little effort or inconvenience, merely by squeezing his hands through them, this species of manacle being altogether ineffectual in confining young persons, in whom the smaller bones readily yield to pressure. He now untied his feet, and, 
leaving the cord in such a manner that it could easily be readjusted in the event of any person's coming down, proceeded to examine the bulkhead where it joined the berth. The partition here was of soft pine board, an inch thick, and he saw that he should have little trouble in cutting his way through. A voice was now heard at the forecastle companionway, and he had just time to put his right hand into his handcuff, the left had not been removed, and to draw the rope and his slipknot round his ankle, when Dirk Peters came below, followed by Tiger, who immediately leaped into the berth and lay down. The dog had been brought on board by Augustus, who knew my attachment to the animal, and thought it would give me pleasure to have him with me during the voyage. He went up to our house for him immediately after first taking me into the hold, but did not think of mentioning the circumstance upon his bringing the watch. Since the mutiny, Augustus had not seen him before his appearance with Dirk Peters, and had given him up for lost, supposing him to have been thrown overboard by some of the malignant villains belonging to the mate's gang. It appeared afterwards that he had crawled into a hole beneath a whaleboat, from which, not having room to turn around, he could not extricate himself. Peters at last let him out, and, with a species of good feeling which my friend knew well how to appreciate, had now brought him to him in the forecastle as a companion, leaving at the same time some salt junk and potatoes, with a can of water. He then went on deck, promising to come down with something more to eat the next day. When he had gone, Augustus freed both hands from the manacles and unfastened his feet. He then turned down the head of the mattress on which he had been lying, and with his penknife, for the ruffians had not thought it worth while to search him, commenced cutting vigorously across one of the partition planks as closely as possible to the floor of the berth. He chose to cut here because, if suddenly interrupted, he would be able to conceal what had been done by letting the head of the mattress fall into its proper position. For the remainder of the day, however, no disturbance occurred, and by night he had completely divided the plank. It should here be observed that none of the crew occupied the forecastle as a sleeping place, living altogether in the cabin since the mutiny, drinking the wines and feasting on the sea stores of Captain Barnard, and giving no more heed than was absolutely necessary to the navigation of the brig. These circumstances proved fortunate both for myself and Augustus, for, had matters been otherwise, he would have found it impossible to reach me. As it was, he proceeded with confidence in his design. It was near daybreak, however, before he completed the second division of the board, which was about a foot above the first cut, thus making an aperture quite large enough to admit his passage through with facility to the main orlop deck. Having got there, he made his way with but little trouble to the lower main hatch, although in so doing he had to scramble over tiers of oil casks piled nearly as high as the upper deck, there being barely room enough left for his body. Upon reaching the hatch, he found that Tiger had followed him below, squeezing between two rows of the casks. It was now too late, however, to attempt getting to me before dawn, as the chief difficulty lay in passing through the close storage in the lower hold. He therefore resolved to return, and wait until the next night. With this design, he proceeded to loosen the hatch, so that he might have as little detention as possible when he should come again. No sooner had he loosened it, than Tiger sprang eagerly to the small opening produced, snuffed for a moment, and then uttered a long whine, scratching at the same time as if anxious to remove the covering with his paws. There could be no doubt from his behavior that he was aware of my being in the hold, and Augustus thought it possible that he would be able to get to me if he put him down. He now hit upon the expedient of sending the note, as it was especially desirable that I should make no attempt at forcing my way out, at least under existing circumstances, and there could be no certainty of his getting to me himself on the morrow as he intended. After events proved how fortunate it was that the idea occurred to him as it did, for, had it not been for the receipt of the note, I should undoubtedly have fallen upon some plan, however desperate, of alarming the crew, and both our lives would probably have been sacrificed in consequence. 
Having concluded to write, the difficulty was now to procure the materials for so doing. An old toothpick was soon made into a pen, and this by means of feeling altogether, for the between decks was as dark as pitch. Paper enough was obtained from the back of a letter, a duplicate of the forged letter from Mr. Ross. This had been the original draft, but the handwriting not being sufficiently well imitated, Augustus had written another, thrusting the first, by good fortune, into his coat pocket, where it was now most opportunely discovered. Ink alone was thus wanting, and a substitute was immediately found for this by means of a slight incision with a penknife on the back of a finger just above the nail, a copious flow of blood ensuing, as usual, from wounds in that vicinity. The note was now written, as well as it could be in the dark and under the circumstances. It briefly explained that a mutiny had taken place, that Captain Barnard was set adrift, and that I might expect immediate relief as far as provisions were concerned, but must not venture upon making any disturbance. It concluded with these words, I have scrawled this with blood. Your life depends upon lying close. This slip of paper being tied upon the dog, he was now put down the hatchway, and Augustus made the best of his way back to the forecastle, where he found no reason to believe that any of the crew had been in his absence. To conceal the hole in the partition, he drove his knife in just above it, and hung up a peacoat which he found in the berth. His handcuffs were then replaced, and also the rope round his ankles. These arrangements were scarcely completed when Dirk Peters came below, very drunk, but in excellent humor, and bringing with him my friend's allowance of provisions for the day. This consisted of a dozen large Irish potatoes roasted, and a pitcher of water. He sat for some time on a chest by the berth, and talked freely about the mate and the general concerns of the brig. His demeanor was exceedingly capricious, and even grotesque. At one time, Augustus was much alarmed by odd conduct. At last, however, he went on deck, muttering a promise to bring his prisoner a good dinner on the morrow. During the day, two of the crew, harpooners, came down, accompanied by the cook, all three in nearly the last stage of intoxication. Like Peters, they made no scruple of talking unreservedly about their plans. It appeared that they were much divided among themselves as to their ultimate course, agreeing in no point except the attack on the ship from the Cape Verde Islands, with which they were in hourly expectation of meeting. As far as could be ascertained, the mutiny had not been brought about altogether for the sake of booty, a private pique of the chief mates against Captain Bernard having been the main instigation. There now seemed to be two principal factions among the crew, one headed by the mate, the other by the cook. The former party were for seizing the first suitable vessel which should present itself, and equipping it at some of the West India Islands for a piratical cruise. The latter division, however, which was the stronger, and included Dirk Peters among its partisans, were bent upon pursuing the course originally laid out for the brig into the South Pacific, there either to take whale or act otherwise as circumstances should suggest. The representations of Peters, who had frequently visited these regions, had great weight, apparently, with the mutineers, wavering, as they were, between half-engendered notions of profit and pleasure. He dwelt on the world of novelty and amusement to be found among the innumerable islands of the Pacific, on the perfect security and freedom from all restraints to be enjoyed, but more particularly on the deliciousness of the climate, on the abundant means of good living, and on the voluptuous beauty of the woman. As yet, nothing had been absolutely determined upon, but the pictures of the hybrid lines manager were taking strong hold upon the ardent imaginations of the seamen, and there was every possibility that his intentions would be finally carried into effect. The three men went away in about an hour, and no one else entered the forecastle all day. Augustus lay quiet until nearly night. He then freed himself from the rope and irons, and prepared for his attempt. A bottle was found in one of the berths, and this he filled with water from the pitcher left by Peters, storing his pockets at the same time with cold potatoes. 
To his great joy he also came across a lantern, and a small piece of tallow candle in it. This he could light at any moment, as he had in his possession a box of phosphorus matches. When it was quite dark, he got through the hole in the bulkhead, having taken the precaution to arrange the bedclothes in the berth so as to convey the idea of a person covered up. When through, he hung up the pea-jacket on his knife, as before, to conceal the aperture, this maneuver being easily effected, as he did not readjust the piece of plank taken out until afterwards. He was now on the main orlop deck, and proceeded to make his way, as before, between the upper deck and the oil cask to the main hatchway. Having reached this, he lit the piece of candle and descended, groping with extreme difficulty among the compact storage of the hold. In a few moments he became alarmed at the insufferable stench and the closeness of the atmosphere. He could not think it possible that I had survived my confinement for so long a period breathing so oppressive an air. He called my name repeatedly, but I made him no reply, and his apprehensions seemed thus to be confirmed. The brig was rolling violently, and there was so much noise in consequence that it was useless to listen for any weak sound, such as those of my breathing or snoring. He threw open the lantern and held it as high as possible, whenever an opportunity occurred in order that, by observing the light, I might, if alive, be aware that succor was approaching. Still, nothing was heard from me, and the supposition of my death began to assume the character of certainty. He determined, nevertheless, to force a passage, if possible, to the box, and at least ascertain beyond a doubt the truth of his surmises. He pushed on for some time in a most pitiable state of anxiety, until, at length, he found the pathway utterly blocked up, and that there was no possibility of making any further way by the course in which he had set out. Overcome now by his feelings, he threw himself among the lumber in despair, and wept like a child. It was at this period that he heard the crash occasioned by the bottle which I had thrown down. Fortunate indeed was it that that incident occurred, for, upon this incident, trivial as it appears, the thread of my destiny depended. Many years elapsed, however, before I was aware of the fact. A natural shame, and regret for his weakness and indecision prevented Augustus from confiding to me at once what a more intimate and unreserved communion afterward induced him to reveal. Upon finding his further progress in the hold impeded by obstacles which he could not overcome, he had resolved to abandon his attempt at reaching me, and return at once to the forecastle. Before condemning him entirely on this head, the harassing circumstances which embarrassed him should be taken into consideration. The night was fast wearing away, and his absence from the forecastle might be discovered and indeed would necessarily be so if he should fail to get back to the berth by daybreak. His candle was expiring in the socket, and there would be the greatest difficulty in retracing his steps to the hatchway in the dark. It must be allowed, too, that he had every good reason to believe me dead, in which event no benefit could result to me from his reaching the box, and a world of danger would be encountered to no purpose by himself. He had repeatedly called, and I had made him no answer. I had been now eleven days and nights with no more water than that contained in the jug which he had left with me, a supply which it was not at all probable I had hoarded in the beginning of my confinement as I had every cause to expect a speedy release. The atmosphere of the hold, too, must have appeared to him, coming from the comparatively open air of the steerage, of a nature absolutely poisonous, and by far more intolerable than it had seemed to me upon my first taking up my quarters in the box the hatchways at that time, having been constantly open for many months previous. Add to these considerations that of the scene of bloodshed and terror so lately witnessed by my friend, his confinement, privations, and narrow escapes from death, together with the frail and equivocal tenure by which he still existed, circumstances all so well calculated to prostrate every energy of mind, and the reader will be easily brought, as I have been, to regard his apparent falling off in friendship and in faith, with sentiments rather of sorrow than of anger. 
The crash of the bottle was distinctly heard, yet Augustus was not sure that it proceeded from the hold. The doubt, however, was sufficient inducement to persevere. He clambered up nearly to the orlop deck by means of the stowage, and then, watching for a lull in the pitching of the vessel, he called out to me in as loud a tone as he could command, regardless, for the moment, of being overheard by the crew. It will be remembered that on this occasion the voice reached me, but I was so entirely overcome by violent agitation as to be incapable of reply. Confident, now, that his worst apprehensions were well-founded, he descended, with a view of getting back to the forecastle without loss of time. In his haste, some small boxes were thrown down, the noise occasioned by which I heard, as will be recollected. He had made considerable progress on his return when the fall of the knife again caused him to hesitate. He retraced his steps immediately, and, clambering up the stowage a second time, called out my name, loudly as before, having watched for a lull. This time I found voice to answer. Overjoyed at discovering me to be still alive, he now resolved to brave every difficulty and danger in reaching me. Having extricated himself as quickly as possible from the labyrinth of lumber by which he was hemmed in, he at length struck into an opening which promised better, and finally, after a series of struggles, arrived at the box in a state of utter exhaustion. End of section 5. Recording by Todd. Please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Gabby Cowan The Works of Edgar Allan Poe Raven Edition, Volume 3 By Edgar Allan Poe Narrative of A. Gordon Pym Chapter 6 The leading particulars of this narration were all that Augustus communicated to me while we remained near the box. It was not until afterward that he entered fully into all the details. He was apprehensive of being missed, and I was wild with impatience to leave my detested place of confinement. We resolved to make our way at once to the hole in the bulkhead, near which I was to remain for the present, while he went through to reconnoiter. To leave Tiger in the box was what neither of us could endure to think of, yet how to act otherwise was the question. He now seemed to be perfectly quiet, and we could not even distinguish the sound of his breathing upon applying our ears closely to the box. I was convinced that he was dead, and determined to open the door. We found him lying at full length, apparently in a deep stupor, yet still alive. No time was to be lost, yet I could not bring myself to abandon an animal who had now been twice instrumental in saving my life without some attempt at preserving him. We therefore dragged him along with us as well as we could, although with the greatest difficulty and fatigue. Augustus, during part of the time, being forced to clamber over the impediments in our way with a huge dog in his arms, a feat to which the feebleness of my frame rendered me totally inadequate. At length we succeeded in reaching the hole, when Augustus got through and Tiger was pushed in afterward. 
all was found to be safe and we did not fail to return sincere thanks to god for our deliverance from the imminent danger we had escaped for the present it was agreed that i should remain near the opening through which my companion could readily supply me with a part of his daily provision and where i could have the advantages of breathing an atmosphere comparatively pure in explanation of some portions of this narrative wherein i have spoken of the stowage of the brig and which may appear ambiguous to some of my readers who may have seen a proper or regular stowage i must here state that the manner in which this most important duty had been performed on board the Grampus was the most shameful piece of neglect on the part of Captain Bernard, who was by no means as careful or as experienced a seaman as the hazardous nature of the service on which he was employed could seem necessarily to demand. A proper stowage cannot be accomplished in a careless manner and many most disastrous accidents even within the limits of my own experience have arisen from neglect or ignorance in this particular coasting vessels in the frequent hurry and bustle attendant upon taking in or discharging cargo are the most liable to mishap from the want of a proper attention to stowage the great point is to allow no possibility of the cargo or ballast shifting position even in the most violent rollings of the vessel with this end great attention must be paid not only to the bulk taken in but to the nature of the bulk and whether there be a full or only a partial cargo in most kinds of freight the stowage is accomplished by means of a screw thus in a load of tobacco or flour the hole is screwed so tightly into the hold of the vessel that the barrels or hogsheads upon discharging are found to be completely flattened and take some time to regain their original shape this screwing however is resorted to principally with a view of obtaining more room in the hold for in a full load of any such commodities as flour or tobacco there can be no danger of any shifting whatever at least none from which inconvenience can result there have been instances indeed where this method of screwing has resulted in the most lamentable consequences arising from a cause altogether distinct from the danger attendant upon a shifting of cargo a load of cotton for example tightly screwed while in certain conditions has been known through the expansion of its bulk to rent a vessel asunder at sea there can be no doubt either that the same result would ensue in the case of tobacco while undergoing its usual course of fermentation 
were it not for the interstices consequent upon the rotundity of the hogs heads it is when a partial cargo is received that danger is chiefly to be apprehended from shifting and that precautions should be always taken to guard against such misfortune only those who have encountered a violent gale of wind or rather who have experienced the rolling of a vessel in a sudden calm after the gale can form an idea of the tremendous force of the plunges and of the consequent terrible impetus given to all loose articles in the vessel it is then that the necessity of a cautious stowage when there is a partial cargo becomes obvious when lying to especially with a small bead sail a vessel which is not properly modelled in the bows is frequently thrown upon her beam ends this occurring even every fifteen or twenty minutes upon an average yet without any serious consequences resulting provided there be a proper stowage if this however has not been strictly attended to in the first of these heavy lurches the whole of the cargo tumbles over to the side of the vessel which lies upon the water and being thus prevented from regaining her equilibrium as she would otherwise necessarily do she is certain to fill in a few seconds and go down it is not too much to say that at least one half of the instances in which vessels have foundered in heavy whales at sea may be attributed to a shifting of cargo or of ballast when partial cargo of any kind is taken on board the whole after being first stowed as compactly as may be should be covered with a layer of stout shifting boards extending completely across the vessel upon these boards strong temporary extensions should be erected reaching to the timbers above and thus securing everything in its place in cargoes consisting of grain or any similar matter additional precautions are requisite a hold filled entirely with grain upon leaving port will be found not more than three-fourths full upon reaching its destination this too although the freight when measured bushel by bushel by the consignee will overrun by a vast deal on account of the swelling of the grain the quantity consigned this result is occasioned by settling during the voyage and is the more perceptible in proportion to the roughness of the weather experience if grain loosely thrown in a vessel then is ever so well secured by shifting boards and stations it will be liable to shift in a long passage so greatly as to bring about the most distressing calamities to prevent this every method should be employed before leaving port to settle the cargo as much as possible and for this there are many contrivances among which may be mentioned the driving of wedges into the grain 
even after all this is done and unusual pains taken to secure the shifting boards no seaman who knows what he is about will feel altogether secure in a gale of any violence with a cargo of grain on board and least of all with a partial cargo yet there are hundreds of our coasting vessels and it is likely many more from the ports of europe which sail daily with partial cargoes even of the most dangerous species and without any precaution whatever the wonder is that no more accidents occur than do actually happen a lamentable instance of this heedlessness occurred to my knowledge in the case of captain joel rice of the schooner firefly which sailed from richmond virginia to madeira with a cargo of corn in the year eighteen twenty five the captain had gone many voyages without serious accident although he was in the habit of paying no attention whatever to his stowage more than to secure it in the ordinary manner he had never before sailed with a cargo of grain and on this occasion had the corn thrown on board loosely when it did not much more than half fill the vessel for the first portion of the voyage he met with nothing more than light breezes but when within a day's sail of madeira there came a strong gale from the north-northeast which forced him to lie too he brought the schooner to the wind under a double reefed foresail alone when she rode as well as any vessel could be expected to do and shipped not a drop of water toward night the gale somewhat abated and she rolled with more unsteadiness than before but still did very well until a heavy lurch threw her upon her beam ends to starboard the corn was then heard to shift bodily the force of the movement bursting open the main hatchway the vessel went down like a shot this happened within hail of a small sloop from madeira which picked up one of the crew the only person safe and which rode out the gale in perfect security as indeed a jolly boat might have done under proper management the stowage on board the grampus was most clumsily done if a stowage that could be called which was little better than a promiscuous huddling together of oil casks and ship furniture I have already spoken of the condition of articles in the hold. On the orlop deck there was space enough for my body, as I have stated, between the oil casks and the upper deck. A space was left open around the main hatchway, and several other large spaces were left in the stowage. Near the hull cut through the bulkhead by augustus there was room enough for an entire cask and in this space i found myself comfortably situated for the present by the time my friend had got safely into the berth and readjusted his handcuffs and the rope 
it was broad daylight we had made a narrow escape indeed for scarcely had he arranged all matters when the mate came below with dirk peters and the cook they talked for some time about the vessel from the cape birds and seemed to be excessively anxious for her appearance at length the cook came to the berth in which augustus was lying and seated himself in it near the head i could see and hear everything from my hiding place for the piece cut out had not been put back and i was in a momentary expectation that the negro would fall against the pea-jacket which was hung up to conceal the aperture in which case all would have been discovered and our lives would no doubt have been instantly sacrificed our good fortune prevailed however and although he frequently touched it as the vessel rolled he never pressed against it sufficiently to bring about a discovery the bottom of the jacket had been carefully fastened to the bulkhead so that the hole might not be seen by its swinging to one side all this time tiger was lying in the foot of the bird and appeared to have recovered in some measure his faculties for i could see him occasionally open his eyes and draw a long breath after a few minutes the mate and cook went above leaving dirk peters behind who as soon as they were gone came and sat himself down in the place just occupied by the mate he began to talk very sociably with augustus and we could now see that the greater part of his apparent intoxication while the two others were with him was a feint he answered all my companion's questions with perfect freedom told him that he had no doubt of his father's having been picked up as there were no less than five sail in sight just before sundown on the day he was caught adrift and used other language of a consolatory nature which occasioned me no less surprise than pleasure indeed i began to entertain hopes that through the instrumentality of peters we might be finally enabled to regain possession of the brig and this idea i mentioned to augustus as soon as i found an opportunity he thought the matter possible but urged the necessity of the greatest caution in making the attempt as the conduct of the hybrid appeared to be instigated by the most arbitrary caprice alone and indeed it was difficult to say if he was at any moment of sound mind peter went upon deck in about an hour and did not return again until noon when he brought augustus a plentiful supply of junk beef and pudding of this when we were left alone i partook heartily without returning through the hole no one else came down into the forecastle during the day and at night i got into augustus berth where i slept soundly and sweetly until nearly daybreak 
when he awakened me upon hearing a stir upon deck, and I regained my hiding place as quickly as possible. When the day was fully broke, we found that Tiger had recovered his strength almost entirely and gave no indications of hydrophobia. Drinking a little water that was offered him with great apparent eagerness. During the day he regained all his former vigor and appetite. His strange conduct had been brought on, no doubt, by the deleterious quality of the air of the hold, and had no connection with canine madness. I could not sufficiently rejoice that I had persisted in bringing him with me from the box. This day was the thirtieth of June, and the thirteenth since the Grampus maid sat from Nantucket. On the second of July, the maid came below drunk as usual, and in an excessively good humor. He came to Augustus' berth and giving him a slap on the back, asked him if he thought he could behave himself if he let him loose, and whether he would promise not to be going into the cabin again. To this, of course, my friend answered in affirmative. When the ruffian set him at liberty after making him drink from a flask of rum which he drew from his coat pocket, both now went on deck and I did not see Augustus for about three hours. He then came below with the good news that he had obtained permission to go about the brig as he pleased anywhere forward of the mainmast, and that he had been ordered to sleep as usual in the forecastle. He brought me too a good dinner and a plentiful supply of water. The brig was still cruising for the vessel from the Cape Birds, and a sail was now in sight which was thought to be the one in question. As the events of the ensuing eight days were of little importance and had no direct bearing upon the main incidents of my narrative, I will here throw them into the form of a journal, as I do not wish to omit them altogether. July 3rd Augustus furnished me with three blankets with which I contrived a comfortable bed in my hiding place. No one came below except my companion during the day. Tiger took his station in the berth just by the aperture and slept heavily, as if not yet entirely recovered from the effects of his sickness. Toward night a flow of wind struck the brig before sail could be taken in, and very nearly capsized her. The puff died away immediately, However, and no damage was done beyond the splitting of the fore-topsail. Dirk Peters treated Augustus all this day with great kindness and entered into a long conversation with him respecting the Pacific Ocean and the islands he had visited in that region. He asked him whether he would not like to go with the mutineers on a kind of exploring and pleasure voyage in those quarters, and said that the men were gradually coming over to the mate's views. To this Augustus thought it best to reply that he would be glad to go on such an adventure, 
since nothing better could be done and that anything was preferable to a piratical life july fourth the vessel inside proved to be a small brig from liverpool and was allowed to pass unmolested augustus spent most of his time on deck with a view of obtaining all information in his power respecting the intentions of the mutineers they had frequent and violent quarrels among themselves in one of which a harpooner jim bonner was thrown overboard the party of the mate was gaining ground jim bonner belonged to the cook's gang of which peters was a partisan july fifth about daybreak there came on a stiff breeze from the west which at noon freshened into a gale so that the brig could carry nothing more than her trysail and foresail in taking in the foretopsail sims one of the common hands and belonging also to the cook's gang fell overboard being very much in liquor and was drowned no attempt being made to save him the whole number of persons on board was now thirteen to wit dick peters seymour the black cook jones greeley hartman rogers and william allen all of the cook's party the mate whose name i never learned absalom hicks wilson john hunty richard parker of the mate's party besides augustus and myself july sixth the gale lasted all this day blowing in heavy squalls accompanied with rain the brig took in a good deal of water through her seams and one of the pumps was kept continually going augustus being forced to take his turn just at twilight a large ship passed close by us without having been discovered until within hail the ship was supposed to be the one for which the mutineers were on the lookout the mate hailed her but the reply was drowned in the roaring of the gale at eleven a sea was shipped amidst ships which tore away a great portion of the larboard bulwarks and did some other slight damage toward morning the weather moderated and at sunrise there was little wind july seventh there was a heavy swell running all this day during which the brig being light rolled excessively and many articles broke loose in the hold as i could hear distinctly from my hiding place i suffered a great deal from sea sickness peters had a long conversation this day with augustus and told him that two of his gang greeley and allen had gone over to the mate and were resolved to turn pirates he put several questions to augustus which he did not then exactly understand during a part of this evening the leak gained upon the vessel and little could be done to remedy it as it was occasioned by the brig's straining and taking in water through her seams a sail was drummed and got under the bows which aided us in some measure 
so that we began to gain upon the leak. July 8. A light breeze sprang up at sunrise from the eastward when the mate headed the brig to the southwest, with the intention of making some of the West India Islands in pursuance of his piratical designs. No opposition was made by Peters or the cook, at least none in the hearing of Augustus. All idea of taking the vessel from the Cape Birds was abandoned. The leak was now easily kept under by one pub, going every three quarters of an hour. The sail was drawn from beneath the bows. Spoke two small schooners during the day. July 9. Fine weather. All hands employed in repairing bulwarks. Peters had again a long conversation with Augustus and spoke more plainly than he had done heretofore. He said nothing should induce him to come into the mate's views and even hinted his intention of taking the brig out of his hands. He asked my friend if he could depend upon his aid in such case, to which Augustus said yes, without hesitation. Peters then said he would sound the others of his party upon the subject and went away. During the remainder of the day, Augustus had no opportunity of speaking with him privately. End of section 6. Recording by Gabby Cowan, Kingston, Ontario, Canada.